I was trying to think about how I wanted to start this message. If you know anything about me, you know when we have a title like Seek Health, this is kind of my jam, but you need to understand why I got to this place because it wasn't uh, until a few years ago. Uh, you've heard plenty of stories, and you forever will if you stay at this church, about kind of my upbringing. I, I confessed Christ when I was five years old. And also in my church, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit uh, at that time as well. So like I was a five-year-old just learning words and also speaking in tongues, all right? Which basically makes me way holier than you could ever imagine at that age, all right? Like you were doing Pokemon, I was studying scripture, all right? Like that's kind of how my, my world worked. Um, and from a young age, I threw myself into scripture. I was kind of thrown into it and, and had to do it. Um, I, would, I would have to wake up early, and most mornings around 6, 6.15, uh, sit over uh, a little uh, floor heater and open my Bible and just read and study Scripture. And that's really kind of how I learned even to read in many ways. Like, that's how young I was in interacting with Scripture. And I can remember, I can remember doing, like, I was cross-referencing the Bible, like, when I was 10, and, and like taking passages from one place from another place and trying to connect the dots. Uh, I, I had a study Bible when I was 12. And uh, with trying, I was like, make notes. I would write in my Bible. Like, this is things I did. And it's because what I was learning early on and what I really believed is that the Christian faith was first and foremost about being very competent, being very competent with the scriptures, knowing what they talked about. Because knowledge would lead then to change. And that is what I wanted, even at 10, 12 years old. Like, I wanted that. And I got so into it, I, I was so sure about this, this competency, this knowledge. Like, I remember I, I would sit in homeroom when usually you would just kind of like goof around, and I would like open up my, I, I had this big red study Bible, and it had a case to it, like the original case, you know, and I would take it out of my book bag. I wouldn't even carry my school books with me, but I would take this out of my book bag, put it on the table during homeroom, open it up, and dare any of my teachers to come try to discuss Scripture with me, and then argue with them. I would argue with 40 and 50-year-old people about Scripture when I was like 14, 15 years old. There's a reason why I was a very lonely person in life, right? Like, <laughs> I just kind of skipped the whole adolescence thing and went straight to I'm going to debate this. I'm going to know this. I'm going to out. I'm going to outknow you is what I'm going to do. That was that was my goal. Now this carried me quite a ways. It carried me into a lot of rooms where people valued competency in a young person. It carried me into a lot of influence. Like I remember being 21, and I was able to just kind of walk into rooms and churches, and people just give me hundreds and thousands of dollars to travel the world to go do this stuff overseas. That's what I did. And I remember all that was fine. I was kind of buying into my own product, right, until I was in my mid-20s, and I got married, right? I got married. And when I got married, all of a sudden, somebody had access to my life to point out to me, like, you're not smoking what you're selling, right? Like, you're, you're not, you keep talking about this thing that you're so into, but when it comes to this at home, you actually don't really live this out. So you have a lot of competency, but you don't have a lot of character. 
And so now I had a next leg of the journey where I had to start learning, okay, I gotta, I've got to like back this thing up that I know so well with these actions that can like let me know that I am truly living this out. And so for the next eight, 10 years, I threw myself into trying to learn character. And it took a while because I was so convinced that all you needed was to be able to kind of wield a mic, navigate your way through scripture, and then you're good to go. And that's what I committed myself to. And then I remember I got really, I mean, I was trying so hard and it took a long time, but eventually all these addictions and all these things, like I would call it my 1 p.m. me and my 1 a.m. me. My 1 p.m. me was sharp and competent and good and kind and loving, and my 1 a.m. me was a mess, like just deteriorating underneath the surface. So I started trying to bring integration and alignment to those things. And I found eventually I was getting there. Eventually, I was getting there. People who had knew me before that knew these parts of my life where all these addictions were, like we're going, hey, you're, you're different now. Like there's something about you. And I was thinking, yes. So now I'm finally ready. Now that I have competency and now that I have character, I can step into whatever it is is before me. Until I got to about four years ago. And I remember a lot of things happening quite quickly some things you don't need to know because it would be appropriate to try to talk through just with the mic and in this way. But basically, I came to a point several years ago where I was someone you could know about, but never a person who could be known. I was someone you could know about, but never a person who could really be known. And I found that as much character and competencies and things like that that were coming together, I was still very hollow and empty I was still really lonely. Like when it came to talking about God, I knew about God, but I didn't really feel like I knew God. And maybe you can relate to that, maybe you can't. But I think if you're honest, you probably can relate to that. You get to where you know a lot about God. You know the passages, you know the stories, you know how this goes. And then you really kind of wonder though, but do I kind of like know God? And I remember, I remember thinking to myself as I was trying to write a sermon one week, I, I, I don't. I don't think I know God. I don't think really God knows me, which is not where you want to be as a pastor. Like, that's kind of like part of your job. And I also remember being so defeated in that space. I had spent since five years old, 30 years working towards this place, this moment, where I could really step into all that God had in front of me. And all I could think about was if this whole thing is fake or not. Like, it was a really lonely place for me. And I also remember going to even darker places thinking, like I had had suicidal thoughts before, but all of a sudden these thoughts were coming back. And I was like, well, I can't do something like that. That's so horrible. So what instead what I found was I just need to get away from my life. And this is where I just need you to understand, like this is a really vulnerable thing for me to say and transparent. I was even planning, like, how do I get away from my marriage? How do I get away from my family? How do I get away from my church? And how do I just kind of get a reset button to life? Now, I don't say that to you to be striking. I say that to you because that's honest. I say that to you because I'm not the only one in this room. Where you start thinking all the thoughts like, I don't think this thing's worth it. And so I've got to find a way to get away from it. Now, listen, some of you, life still works really well, and you haven't been to that place. Bless you. For a lot of other people, life has not worked that well. To where eventually you go, I don't think I want this anymore. And so here's what happened. 
Because I would tell about five to 10 different people bits about me that seemed so honest and so truthful and so vulnerable, yet but never the full scope of what was really happening in my life. And it would take those five or 10 people to all happen to huddle together in one place to want to talk about Robin before they really understood how serious and grave everything was, was in his life. And so I remember I had to find the courage to tell one person as fast as I could, I called it my 15 minutes of insane courage, everything about my life that was very true at that moment. And that person in turn said, hey, I think there's a place you can get help. So I went to treatment. Again, not something you want to talk about up front on a Sunday morning. This stuff's recorded. But it's true. And it's real. And I remember when I came away back from that after six weeks, I started thinking, whatever I've been doing, I have a lot of experience in that for 30 years. Like knowing scripture, doing the right things, being integrated from the 1 p.m. and 1 a.m. me, being a good person out in public. And at the end of the day, I had no clue how to care for myself, which was that third C. Of course, I'm a pastor. I got to have three C's, competency, character, but then care of self. And I remember thinking, everything has to change. And if, I, if I'm even going to be here, everything has to change. And so that's what brings us to this second part of these eight practices. Last week, we talked about the importance of choosing presence. How important it is for you to be able to be in the moment with another person, but you can't be with another person unless you're with yourself. But now you're going to be faced with something. When you're really with yourself, you're going to have to ask the question, Am I healthy enough for this journey ahead? Do I have what it takes to step into things in front of me? Or do I simply have just a lot of competencies, a lot of character? Here's what I found in life, and I heard somebody say this a while back. I'm less interested in what you believe, and I'm more interested in how that's working for you. I'm very honest when I say this to you. I'm not that interested in what you believe. I'm really not. I'm just really interested in how is that working for you? Do you actually have a life that is somewhat healthy? Do you have a life where you can show up and step into it, or you're always having to get away from it and numb yourself out? Because here's what we're going to find this morning. Jesus has something to say about all this. So let's just jump right in into what Jesus has to say. First, it starts by this, because we're going to look at three, we're going to try to unpack three things, like, like why is this so important to Jesus? The second thing, though, is going to be like, what are, what is, what's the main defeater that keeps us from wanting to do what Jesus is talking about? And then lastly, I have four questions to kind of throw your way at the end for you to be thinking about moving forward. So let's look here, verse 28. It just says, the first line, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Now, this is a well-known passage. You've read it. You know it. You don't have to be in church to know that these kind of two greatest commandments and we find here that Jesus is in, the midst, is in the midst of a series of questions. This would be very normal, but the whole chapter of, of Mark 12 are these questions Jesus is having to field. Um, and so, like, early on, it's, like, questions about, like, resurrection, or it's about who do you give money to, like, Caesar or not. Like, there's all these kind of questions, and it was a really normal practice to ask rabbis questions to try to get a feel for, like, does this guy, like, does he get it? Like, what, what kind of yoke, what kind of teaching is he going to be kind of giving to other people around him? So 
It was also, though, a way of trying, in rhetoric, to try to trap people. Like, so these, these leaders are trying to trap Jesus in his words. And Jesus is so confident. He gets this. He goes, like, you're not going to trap me. So he's, an- he's fielding these questions. He's answering them. And he's arguing or debating with the, Pharise- with the Sadducees who don't believe in a resurrection. And so they're trying to use this rhetoric. And then this guy, this teacher of the law, is listening on all this. And so it says next, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, this question specifically would be a very normal question to ask a rabbi. They have 15, at this point in time, 1,500 years worth of laws, of decrees, of ways of living, and if you've ever tried to read the Old Testament, if you've ever tried to read like the, the Torah, like you don't know what's going on. I don't, it's a lot of stuff. Like over 600 and something of these things that you got to kind of live by and understand. Some would say it even goes up into the 800s if you try to parse out different ones. So you're like, they're like, there's like all these hundreds of ways that we're to interact with God in this world. Rabbi, if you were to sum up everything, how would you sum it up? And this was kind of the litmus test to what kind of rabbi you had in front of you. And Jesus says to him, the most important one is this. Hear, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This makes sense. This answer makes sense. Like, if you were to say anything else, you'd have to kind of go like, did you read the Old Testament? Did you read the Pentateuch? Did you, did, you, did you even kind of pick up what this thing was saying? Of course we're to interact with God and to love God. And yes, with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength, with everything in us. Matter of fact, it even starts off with the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Which, you're like, what does that even matter? They're trying to say something here. The God of the universe is on your side. And before you even try to think about about loving this God, you need to know something. The God of the universe is on your side. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Your God, not just Abraham and, and, and uh, Isaac and Jacob's God, your God. Very purposeful language here. But then it says, and to love him with everything you got. But then Jesus throws a swerve because he only asked for like one, didn't he? What's the greatest commandment? It should have ended there. And Jesus is like, uh-uh we got to take it one step further. You didn't ask the right question. The right question isn't what's the greatest command. The right question is what are the greatest commandments? Because you actually need more than one. And here's what he says next. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. All right, so here's what he has to say. And this would be very common for anyone in this room that grew up in church longer than a minute. Love God love others. Can we all agree to that? Yes, that is what I personally grew up with, to love God and to love others. Until you look more closely and you realize, nope, that's not right. Because it's actually love God, love you, love others. And here we have the great conundrum in the church today. Like one of the, we got a lot, one of them. You're like, really, that's the one? Well, 
Trust me, it's kind of at the core. To love God, love you, love others, and let's just be honest, we are not comfortable with that. There's a reason why we've overlooked that for as long as we have, for hundreds of years. And it's created a type of psyche in the church today that, that tries to dismiss it and say, no, I actually can't love myself. What are you talking about, love myself? What are you, Tom Haverford, like on Parks and Rec? What are you saying, treat yourself? No. Are you trying to tell me that, Jesus? No. Maybe, no, no. Maybe, no. Like, here's what Jesus is trying to get to. He's telling us something quite profound. Until you get yourself, you never are able to give yourself. Until you learn how to love, how to value your humanity, to see yourself with inherent dignity, you'll never fully offer that to another person. You hear me on that? Until you get you, you can't give you. Until you actually see this thing right here, you look at in the mirror as something that has dignity and worth and that you're not spending all your time shaming into a hole until you see that you are made the image of God, you will always give out half-hearted measures into loving the world around you. There's a gap there. And yet we wonder why our love can only go so far to our brothers and sisters in whatever religion or whatever part of Memphis or whatever it may be. That's why we have all these kind of standards and barriers before we can fully love someone and bring them in. Because at the end of the day, I'm just going to tell you something. We'll get more to this. You don't really know how to love yourself well. And Jesus gets this. Like we're talking about, we're still catching up to him 2,000 years later. I mean, this kind of understanding in psychology is really only about 70 years old of us understanding the science of the mind and how it's broken up. Jesus gets this way, way before. The need to actually see yourself, love you, so you can love other people. In, in John 10.10, 10, it says, I am the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. The word there is sozo. The word sozo means wholeness. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will have wholeness. They will come in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that they may have life, which is the word zoe, abundant life, and it more abundantly. In the message, I love how it's, it's said, I am the gate. Anyone who goes through me will be cared for will freely go in and out and find pasture. A thief is only there to steal, kill, and destroy. I came so that they may have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. More and better life than they ever dreamed of. And if you think he's just making this up, well, you'd be wrong. Because even in the Old Testament, we have Psalm 16 you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence and eternal pleasures at your right hand. And then even, I love this passage in Ezekiel 16. It says, then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. And I made you grow like a plant of the field. The Bible God, 
Jesus is really interested in you having a full life and you having as full of a life as a tree planted by the water as you possibly can, of you being able to see yourself, love yourself, care for yourself, and then take that and give that to someone else out of the abundance of what you see about you because you know something. There is a God who is one who already thinks that about you. The problem is we don't really have a God that we think actually thinks that about us. It's because we start in Genesis 3 and not Genesis 1. It's because we start at a place where humans get it wrong, and we don't start in the place where, like, God's going, like, you're made my image. You have eternal dignity and worth. That's one of our greatest problems. We don't even know where to start in the Bible. All of our theology is built off of something that happens in Genesis 3. But we don't know how to even get to two chapters before then. And this is why, I want you to hear me say this, this is why we believe, listen, having mercy and pursuing justice are the very last two things we'll talk about in these practices. There's a reason why. Until you get this, you will never be able to give that. Until you actually can see the inherent dignity and worth that God has given to you, and you learn to live out of that, Everything you give for justice and mercy to anyone else will just simply be like, it's like looking through like a mirror, but like it's kind of foggy and you don't fully see it. You're going to be convinced that that's fullness, but it's not really fullness. Now, obviously, there are detractors to this. Actually, before I do that, I want to read this to you. This is from Parker Palmer, theologian, writer. He says, self-care is never a selfish act. It is simply good stewardship of the only gift I have, the gift I was put on earth to offer others. Anytime we can listen to our true self and give the care it requires, we do it not only for ourselves, but for the many others whose lives we touch. If we don't ever start putting the work into self-care, and I don't mean like treat yourself day, like but also mean like, yeah, like maybe going to a spa. Ladies, maybe having a day to care for yourself. Or here's another one. Maybe it's not about like trying to keep all the weight off. Maybe it's just about letting yourself be whatever body image you have. That's a hard one. Maybe it's not about trying to be so hyper-masculine, guys. And I was projecting how we always got this. Maybe it's about you realizing, like, you need some femininity in your lives. You could learn a lot there. You could learn a lot in just how to, like, maybe see, care for yourself, love yourself, nurture yourself more. Like, maybe there's all kinds of ways we can learn how to be more caring of ourselves and not living out of shame of what we should be, instead living out of a love of what we can be. A love that's given to us. But a love that sometimes, you know, the scariest thing will be letting someone fully see you and love you and you buy into that. Just so you know, it's the scariest thing in the world. I believed for years that Suzanne was out for me. I'm like, there's no way somebody could be this for me. There's got to be a trick to it. And we'd get into these fights early on in our marriage, and she would say, I'm not against you. And I'm like, yes, you are. 
everyone's against me and I will win Enneagram 8. I will burn this world down before anybody gets me again. Like that was kind of my approach to life. I didn't believe anybody was actually for me, that somebody could actually see me and see my flaws and go, hey, I don't always like that, but I'm actually good with you. You're good with me. You can't be good with me. I'm not good with me. And there's the problem. So what's the defeater or detractor with this? The one that I feel like that caused me for the longest time to never fully buy into and grasp what does it mean to love myself well is found in Matthew 16. You know it. It's familiar. We'll put it on the screen. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. 99.999999% of Christian discipleship has been built off of this verse. And it's wrong. Okay? Sorry. It's wrong. Here's why. You're like, you can't say that, Robin. Just give me a second, okay? Here's why. Here's how I always approach this passage. Robin, put yourself second, put God first and everything around you, and just go for it. And then all these things will work out for you. And you'll find that you have gained the thing that you were looking for. And yet, why was it every time I did that, it's like I had to go out and try it. And then I got like my tail whooped and had to run back in questioning if this thing was ever worth it in the first place. Why is it that I felt like I was in some kind of like cyclical, sick relationship that things never really changed, but I kept throwing myself out there, but things never really changed. I would go and disciple, but I didn't really feel like I was getting that myself. I kept giving everything out of me, but I was giving out of empty pockets. Well, it's because you weren't studying the Word enough. Well, I just told you I started when I was eight years old. When did you start? Okay, well, it's because you didn't have a lot of character in your life. I just told you I licked and kicked all those things that were problems in my life. How about you? So my problem has been this. It's not that I haven't been studying Scripture enough or filling myself up enough or going to enough worship conferences. It may just be that I don't get what Jesus is talking about here. Now, context. What could Jesus be talking about? Well, we know it's first century, 2,000 years ago. We know it's a Greco-Roman world. And we know that the most influential thinker that had this, this tree of all these other thinkers come from him, philosophers, was a guy named Aristotle. And he wrote a famous book that for over 2,000 years was the standard on how you interact with and understand the mind. It was called On the Soul. On the Soul. That's what the book was called. Psyche, which is really interesting, by the way, because the word Jesus is, that Jesus used here, just look back at the verse. If anyone wants to save their life, the word is psyche. It's where we get the word psychology. If anyone wants to save their life, they, have to, they will have to lose it. Whoever, wants to, whoever loses their psyche will find it. Now, Aristotle had three ways, a tripartite, of how he would break down the mind that forever, until the early 20th century with Carl Jung, would actually be kind of the standard of how we interact with the mind. And he believed the, the mind was broken up in three ways. I'll put it on the screen here for you. Logistikon would be the first part. That's reason. A lot of psychologists today would say that's part of the frontal lobe, where you reason things out. 
The second part of the mind, he said, was thymoides, which would be like feelings, where the passion comes. A lot would say that's kind of the back of the brain, your limbic. And there's a third part, how he broke it down, of the epimetikon, the urges. And many would say that's also kind of the brain stem, like that's where you just kind of get these urges and things and, and how you live. So he was breaking down the brain way before anyone else could even imagine how to break down the brain. This guy is genius level that's never been matched. And so this is how we kind of interact with the mind. Like there's these three parts to it, and all of these things make up the soul. And so you're like, okay, so what's Jesus saying here? Well, I don't think we get a, full, a more full grasp, and this is kind of the part where we get to be on this side of history. Like, again, I just think Jesus is ahead of his time on things. Like, there's a guy named Carl Jung, German psychologist. He's kind of the father of modern-day psychology. And he came up with an idea that said this. He goes, listen, all of us are interacting with and curating this kind of shadow side, he called it. This part of us of what we want to project to the world. This part of us of how we want to be seen in life and understood in life. If you've done any kind of work in Enneagram, you've heard this term before, like, the shadow side of you. I want to project how you see me. I want to project what it is I want to be about in this world. He goes, but listen, if you got a dark side to it, there's a light side to it. There's a part of you that doesn't have to interact with the ego in those ways. Because what Jung's pointing to, what Aristotle was trying to break down in these three parts is, there is an ego in us that wants to project that we got this. Like, I don't need to be needy. Because Aristotle's point was, at the end of the day, your reasoning part of your brain can override everything else. Matter of fact, he hated the urges part of his brain. And he would write about how much he hated these urges he would have. And that was, that was hu the human's greatest thing they had to conquer in life. I had to conquer these urges. Now what Jesus is trying to say, what I believe he's trying to say here, what I'd give to you is this. Until you learn to deny the psyche of what it tries to project. Until you learn to deny this thing, this ego that you're trying to curate, you'll never be able to fully follow me. You'll always be trying to go half-mast and give some but not all. He's not trying to tell us, deny your needs, deny your humanity, deny caring for yourself. He's trying to say, Deny, that, deny the stinking ego in your life that keeps trying to convince you that you don't need to go further with me. There's a line from Jim Elliott. I've always loved it. I don't have it here. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Well, what can't we keep? this psyche, this projection, don't you get tired of trying to project who you want everyone else to see you as? And if you're not tired yet, do you think maybe you'll get tired of it one day? Do you get tired of having to be seen as this person who has it all together because you got your competencies and your character in place, you're good to go? What Jesus is saying is, total abandonment of all the ways you try to project yourself in this world. And instead, let me be the place you come and follow me all the way to the cross. Because you'll never, you know what the cross means? Neediness. Nobody hangs on a cross and says, I got this. 
Like nobody cares across their back and they go, this is all working out just the way I planned. No, you carry a cross and you're like, like I don't got this. There's a book, it'll be part of the, the resources when you go to our website. There's a book by a guy named Pete Scazzaro, um, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Is that it? Um, and there's just a line here I love what he had to say. Because I think a lot of discipleship's been built off of this. Deny your needs, deny the parts of you that make you human, and move forward and do whatever you got to do for the sake of the cross, but you end up cavernous and hollow and then resenting it. And I think he picks up on this by saying, when we deny our pain, losses, and feelings year after year, we become less and less human. We transform slowly into empty shells with smiley faces painted on them. Sad to say, that is the fruit of much of our discipleship in our churches. But when I began to allow myself to feel a wider range of emotions, including sadness, depression, fear, and anger, a revolution in my spirituality was unleashed. I soon realized that a failure to appreciate the biblical place of feelings within our larger Christian lives, listen to this next part, has done extensive damage keeping free people in Christ in slavery. He ends it by saying this, Christian spirituality without an integration of emotional health can be deadly to yourself, to your relationship with God, and the people around you. You know, when something becomes kind of sarcastic or a meme, you know that it's caught on culturally. I, I, I know we as a church are meme-worthy when it comes to talking about feelings. I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud that you roll your eyes or tease it or make fun of it or don't know what to do with it sometimes. I love that because that means it's a part of our culture. And I'll tell you this, that also means it's going to be really hard to be a part of this culture if you don't jump in on that. And it's not because, like, everybody's got to be a robot in that way. It's because this. Um, I can, when I talk to a person, I can tell what's going on in them. It doesn't take a lot. Like, when a person starts talking, you're like, oh, man, there's a lot of rage. Man, there's a lot of sadness. They don't have to do with that. It's not for me. It's for you. It's for you to be able to show up and talk about what's going on in your life and be needy. And I don't care if you use certain words or whatever else. What I care about is this. Do you see that we spend our lives trying to project the shadow side? And here's the deal. Everybody else knows you're doing it. Everybody else sees it because they're doing it too. They know what's going on there. So we just kind of tend to be these people projecting each other, these egos, and we're all like, like, like running like in motion, like standing still on a hamster wheel. Yeah, but like I know my Bible, and yeah, I've really worked on this problem in my life, and yeah, I've kind of kicked that habit. So? Are you emptiness? Are you empty and cavernous inside? Do you have a way for people to connect with you? Well, no, not really. But, you know, I got to deny myself. Goodness gracious. What has happened to us? So here's how I want to leave it. I got four questions. Don't have a lot of time to unpack them. But that's on purpose because I want it to kind of take you down a trail. I think these four questions, they've been helpful to me. Maybe they can be helpful to you. Here's the first one. These are questions for you to ask yourself 
in caring for yourself and seeking health? Do I start in Genesis 3 or do I start in Genesis 1? And that means how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself first as this broken, flawed person who can't get their life together and therefore you have to always project to other people what is not true about you? Because you're afraid if you share how broken and flawed you are, then people will like leave you. Or do you get to start, have the freedom to start in going, I made the image of God. I have inherent self-worth and value, not because I look in the mirror and tell myself I'm good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, people like me, but because God looks at you and says, you're good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, I like you. Do you start there? If you start there, you can go anywhere else in the Bible you want. If you don't start there, you're always like handicapped, one arm behind your back. Second question. Am I fully known by someone? Just this one person, one person, and your spouse doesn't count because you're probably codependent with your spouse to some degree, okay? But they also need to be in there. Does one person know the full truth about what's happening in your life? I mean everything. I mean all the ways you try to project and hide and all the ways you try to maneuver. Does one person get to see all of you or do you chop up your life in 10 different ways hoping that one person ever fully finds out what's happening in your life? So are you fully known? Number three, this is a tricky one. Do I have space to surrender and not simply submit? Most of the time we try to do uh, this stuff through what we call accountability groups, which are really like shaming groups, Right? Because all you do is look at the person and what they're doing and thinking, well, I'm not doing as good as them, you know. Or another thing we do is we want to run. Like I used to do this. I used to run to my pastors and like, I've done all these things and, and I, just, I just need to submit myself and throw myself down on the altar here. And what I wanted to do was I wanted somebody to shame me into change. Just tell me, brother, how I get it all wrong so I can kind of go take that weight back on my shoulders and like, make myself change. But that doesn't work, does it? Because if that's what you're doing, you probably still got that thing you're doing. So how do I find a place, a space and a place to surrender, to go, I give up. You know, they do that in 12-step recovery. They, they call it a sponsor. It could be called a therapist. It could be called a mentor. Someone that you go to and this is what discipleship now looks like. Discipleship isn't learning Bible. Discipleship is learning how to have a fuller life in Christ. Which, by the way, anyone who ever says we're not doing discipleship, you're so wrong. That's so wrong. Because this is discipleship. And until you get this, you don't get to do any other discipleship because this is at the core of discipleship. We have to be willing to receive that and know that. Where's this, do I have a space to surrender and go, okay, I'll go do that? and not try to manage my life on my terms. And lastly, am I living out of shame or love? Do you do because you should, or do you do because you can? Love says yes. Should says try again. Love says let's step into this because you're worth it. Should says you're inherently broken, you'll never get it. 
Do you live out of a shame, out of a should? Or do you get to live out of a love that's inviting you into something more to go, yeah, let's figure out how you do have a plan of self-care in your life. To have better boundaries around people who keep harming you. How to actually go like, I want to be better with my body image. I want to be better with my personal ways that I treat myself. And by the way, like caring for yourself is the hardest work you'll ever do. And guess what happens? Your pockets get full, and then when people come around you and they're needy, you just reach in your pocket and you give them stuff. You don't give them advice. You give them your life. You give them like, well, here's what Christ has meant to me. And they go, goodness, that's so amazing. Thank you. Can I get more? Sure. And all of a sudden, you're discipling. It's amazing how it works. So as we get ready to come to the table, do you see this table as a place of love or a place of shame? A place that starts in Genesis 1, or are you coming here out of Genesis 3? A place that says, like, you can surrender and, like, you don't have to submit anymore, and I'll lead you and help you find greater health and wholeness of life. Let's pray. So, Father, now as we go before your table, we pray that you would allow us to truly believe what it is we're talking about here and to even see this table as a space to come and get the life that we know that you desire for us because Christ was willing to give up his life and now we can have life in him. In the name we pray, amen.